0: Welcome to another episode of The Science of Therapy. I'm Amelia. And I'm Maddie. I am really excited to be hopefully bringing some super interesting research to the people who will find it super interesting and hopefully relevant to their practice, study, or day-to-day life. Just some fun facts.
1: Exactly. Many fun facts. So today we interviewed Jess Grisham. Jess is a professor at UNSW Sydney, and she is both a clinical psychologist and an academic. And Jess's research has traditionally focused on OCD, so obsessive compulsive disorder uh, and those disorders. And then a couple of years ago, the, the subtype of hoarding disorder was split from the family of OCD disorders. Is
0: that from DSM-4 to DSM-5?
1: I think so, yeah. Yeah, well, it'd have to be. There's been no iteration. Yeah, there's (laughs) no (laughs) DSM-6. And her research now encompasses both obsessive compulsive disorder and hoarding disorder. And today we spoke to her about hoarding disorder, what that looks like, what treatment might look like, and some of the things that maybe go on and behind the scenes of what contributes to hoarding disorder.
0: This should be a really interesting one. I would guess that a lot of Clinicians practicing in the community don't see a whole lot of people with hoarding disorder. So the way that treatment plays out, I was really interested to learn about some of the differences in typical treatment approaches and some of the things that clinicians should be mindful of.
1: And as per usual, I asked a question about behavioral treatments and exposure, which was my
0: best part. It's like the conflict of interest statement prior to submitting an article for publication. <laughs> I, Madeline Bisby, am aware that I am biased toward behavioral treatments. We, I think a lot of people would agree that uh, behavior change, no matter what the modality, evidence. no matter what the modality, is really important in treatment. Um, But I would argue for other things as well, but I'm a bit of a common factor. Well, that came
1: out, all right, lady. (laughs) Yeah,
0: that's true. That's true. So yes, I really enjoyed learning about how treatment looks and how it differs from your typical exposure, for example. Mm -hmm. And I also loved to just unpack this as we will learn unhelpful, harmful stereotype of what somebody with hoarding disorder looks like. I hope that's resonant and I hope that that, Helps people to access a little bit more empathy and understanding and insight into this population of people.
1: On that note, let's get into it. Take it away.
0: Welcome to the podcast, Jess.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: So, firstly, let's
0: start with the big one What is hoarding and what is hoarding disorder?
2: We all vary on the spectrum in terms of how much we collect things and buy things and how attached we get our stuff and how much we save. So it's a dimensional um, construct, just like many things. But hoarding disorder is when you have crossed into the extreme end of that, where you are collecting and saving things, or you've really struggled to discard anything in your home, and you're very, very attached to a large number of items. And of course, like other psychological disorders, at the point where it starts compromising your functioning and in hoarding, that's oftentimes your your home and your living condition. So you can't use your kitchen to cook and you're not able to shower in your shower and you're um, unable to sit on your couch. We have clients who aren't able to sleep in their bed for years. When you get to that level of, distra- of impairment in functioning and sometimes distress as well, that's where we cross into hoarding disorder.
0: It's really interesting to hear you speak about that typical two-point distinction that we make between sub-threshold or subclinical domains and when they become more of a disorder, the impairment in functioning and the clinically significant distress. But it was interesting, I heard you mention that functioning is a clear one and it's really objective functioning in terms of there's no space to cook one cannot shower, one can't sleep in their bed. But then there's this distress aspect. Is it more a functioning than a distress issue where actually the hoarding is probably reducing the distress
2: in the short term? Yeah, that absolutely makes sense. And I think you're on to a really good point there, which is that the insight and awareness of how much your hoarding is a problem is quite variable. So there are certainly hoarding clients we see who are extremely distressed about the buildup of clutter and they know they have a problem and they're motivated to seek treatment. However, there are many clients that we see or families of people with hoarding difficulties that we hear from where the person with the hoarding problem itself may exhibit that impairment as you were describing, but isn't particularly distressed themselves by it or will frequently argue that they don't really have a problem with hoarding, they just need more space, they just need more storage. And that is one of the most challenging things in hoarding treatment is people who lack that insight and awareness into the hoarding and and the challenges it's creating in their life, and of course, then in their family and loved ones. And that's another very um, frequent and challenging aspect of hoarding is when the family members are dealing with an extremely cluttered possibly unsanitary home mm. and the person who's collecting and saving says it's really not a problem it's it's you it's not me mm. um, and that creates so much tension and anger and resentment in the family which is something we also see a lot mm,
1: definitely it's really interesting in that hoarding disorder unlike a lot of other mental health difficulties it has such a physical manifestation it's so clear that someone has has hoarding difficulties perhaps or is on that spectrum of hoarding I guess Mm. when you were speaking about how not everyone with hoarding believes that they do need treatment or believe that it is an issue, what is the percentage perhaps of the people you see with hoarding disorder who are there, not of their own volition? And would you say that there is a role for people to be brought into treatment against their own will in hoarding disorder? Or is it you know really about the autonomy of the client and, okay, I want treatment, so I will get it?
2: At the very challenging end where the person doesn't have any awareness, what we end up often doing is working with the family to help motivate the client to help set boundaries to stop doing accommodation behaviors where they're bringing things in or helping them save things. And also we do a real um, harm reduction focus Mm. in those cases because if you're, if the autonomy, as you say, and the motivation really isn't there, it's probably not going to be. Exactly. um, a major treatment progress. Mm. And yet we have this really big challenge where there's actual health and safety hazards happening. Yeah, there's cords that are tangled up. There's um, sanitary issues. There's rodents. There's fire hazards. There's problems of structural collapse and building up of really wet, heavy newspapers and, and, and things that are very concerning, particularly for elderly hoarding clients, mm. but in general. Yeah. So what we, the current approach is to try and really focus on how can we hone in on those things that are, an immediate health and safety risk and motivate the client to kind of address those issues while hopefully continuing to encourage them and use some motivational interviewing strategies to get them a little bit motivated to live a less cluttered life and to notice some of the risks that they're facing as a result of the hoarding. That's
0: really interesting to hear the approach that you would take with that group of people who may have a limited awareness and and have kind of little distress around the hoarding aspects. It reminds me of an interesting idea I was playing around in my mind with the other day around, is it psychotherapy when the client or the recipient isn't a willing participant? That's probably a rabbit hole.
2: (laughs) It's such an interesting question, though, because from an ethical perspective exactly. as well, I mean, you just how- wonder. But then I think you have that competing health and safety exactly. issue. Exactly. Like, as you said, you would see this in other uh, eating disorders and other where there's a really acute risk happening and the client's not on board. But it doesn't feel great. I agree as a therapist to be working in a way that's not fully aligned with your client's goals and values. Exactly. It's really
0: and yeah, those parallels around other clinical, you know, disorders like eating disorders mm. when there's child protection concerns and people aren't necessarily willing participants in the psychotherapy process. It's it's a really different flavor of, of psychotherapy and often involves things like harm reduction, as you said, and, and um, motivational interviewing. Yeah, and building up the supports like the family network as well. I was interested, um, when we talk about that category of people, I think that's probably what the general public are more aware of in terms of hoarding. You know, there's always some sort of documentary or expose on an extremely severe hoarder who has low insight. And it paints a bit of a caricature perhaps of the broader hoarding population. As you mentioned, it's on a continuum. And as you also mentioned, some people do have awareness and it causes them distress. I'd love to hear a little bit about those people who maybe more willingly present to treatment and a little bit about how the process of therapy goes with
2: them. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, you raise a really good point too about the caricature that we see in the meeting, and that is a frustrating issue that is ongoing. Um, Maddie mentioned earlier that the physical manifestation of hoarding is so visible, which is different from other disorders, and that's kind of my pet theory about how it ends up in reality TV shows and mm. referenced in sitcoms so often. When someone is depressed, there's often not much to look at, right? It's very internal experience. But when someone's hoarding, there is all this very obvious markers of what's going on that, that create this sens- sensationalist kind of perspective. So I think that that, you're right, draws the attention, but it also creates, as you're right, a bit of a, a false stereotype where maybe the cases that we see are people who aren't really aware and are in the middle of legal battles and council cleanups and things like mm. that. But you're right. The majority of our clients, actually, and, and makes sense because they're in our treatment groups, are quite deeply troubled and um, have varying degrees of motivation, but some level of motivation and insight. And some of them, quite high levels of motivation and insight. It doesn't mean that they aren't struggling on a daily basis to actually make the difficult decisions and to focus and to do their discarding exposures. But it can be an ongoing motivational struggle. But more in the way that many mental disorders are, where just from day to day, finding the motivation, particularly for our clients, who have lots of comorbid issues, physical health problems, as well as depression, as well as fatigue, finding ways to address those and, and roll with it and continue progressing in terms of meeting your hoarding related goals is, is really one of the biggest things that our therapists work on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: You made a good point in that a lot of therapy involves discarding these items. And these items would inevitably have some sort of often sentimental value or a really personal attachment to them. And that's a bit different too when we're doing exposure in different mental health disorders. How do you find that kind of manifests in therapy and how that's different to other disorders?
2: Yeah, I think that that's different in in a number of ways. One is you're right, there's a lot of actual grief that comes out and guilt and these emotions that aren't necessarily in line with the fear and anxiety we might see in a spider yeah, yeah exactly. one of the things we've been incorporating in our treatment to address some of that is emotion regulation and distress tolerance because oh. we find clients are very fearful that they're going to be overwhelmed by the grief and the distress and they can't cope and they're not going to be able to manage and that the distress and the sadness will go on forever so doing some exposures and some behavioral experiments around that can be one way to deal with it and the other side of it is the pleasure component i think this is kind of comes up in the Um, motivation as well. But people, unlike, again, social anxiety or panic disorder or other anxiety based disorders, there is this actual positive affect that they get from their stuff that they feel good when they look at it, they enjoy collecting, they enjoy going to the thrift store and picking up items. And it's a real source of positive affect. So it's something for therapists to be really aware of. The last thing you want to do is really remove one of their main sources of pleasure and enjoyment and positive affect without thinking very clearly from the beginning of what are we building into their life to Mm. make sure that they're able to still find um, things that are enjoyable and pleasurable and and meaningful for them. Because a lot of times, a lot of the meaning is is all focused around the collecting and saving behavior and it's, it's a concern. Wow.
1: And I wonder, is part of that also a little bit about, I don't know, from a personal perspective, one of the reasons I am able to sometimes throw things away is because I'm like, okay, this is a reminder, but I still have the memory or I still have the thought. Does that come up in treatment?
2: That comes up a lot in, in various angles of cognitive challenging. There was a little bit of a bump, um, number maybe five years ago, of a study that had people take Polaroid pictures, I think, of the things that they were throwing away as a way to kind of retain that. But it's not a great long-term strategy for our clinical hoarding clients. No, but you're right. It just ends up a new thing to collect as manage. But but you're right that a lot of the challenging that we would do would address this idea of what are other ways that you can honor your your life or your history or the things that are important to you other than saving onto all these physical mementos and and that that these things are not the experience themselves i think you're right separating those things out diffusing what what was your actual memory and experience and the love you have for perhaps your grandmother or um, another old friend in your life and this this physical object is is not the only repository of those things it's it's a hard one though Mm. particularly when people are feeling lonely and anxious and and struggling with that kind of thing to to let go of these kinds of mementos The other thing is, I guess, we see a lot of clients who are hanging on to things that aren't just the emotional, although those are some of the hardest, the sentimental, but there's a lot of clients who have really strong environmental concerns. We're starting to call it environmental scrupulosity because it almost maps onto what the scrupulosity you see in obsessive compulsive disorder, where the thought of throwing away something that maybe someone else in the world somewhere could use and, 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 and landfill is actually like physically and emotionally painful it's it's catastrophic to imagine that you would throw something away and be contributing to environmental waste oh my gosh and obviously we all could be and should be concerned about but it gets to a level where you couldn't throw out a yogurt puff and every single imagine if every single item in your home you felt you could not let anything go into the bin um it it very quickly creates a massive problem
0: that's fascinating it has some parallels but you can also see some differences there I mean I routinely rinse the dregs of a greek yogurt container and think like oh I could use this for something and then they build up and then I throw them out and I know that's completely non-clinical but I can see how once you move much further down that spectrum how problematic that could be And out of a genuine concern about some real crises occurring in the world.
2: Exactly. They're coming from a really good place, but getting to an extreme level where you are no longer able to function. And I think you're right. It's something we can all relate to, both the sentimental that um, Madeline was talking about, as well as this environmental. These are all instincts that we can relate to, but they've gotten so extreme that they prevent the person from just living their life.
0: I was really interested before when you were talking about the exposures that occurred during hoarding that are quite different to what we would perhaps typically be familiar with when we expose people to feed stimuli. It's really around coping with heightened anxiety and learning skills perhaps to manage that level of distress but also learning new things about the perceived safety of the situation and one's ability to
2: cope. And that's probably more of the parallel. Countering the avoidance and approaching this the feared situation, that part does map on. But you're right that there are these more complex these differences are up.
0: around almost exposure to loss and grief. Often you think about exposure, one of the big motivating factors is that you're encouraging someone to engage in something that will help them gain more meaning in their lives. Whereas this often, at least at the outset, feels like, they're losing a little bit by discarding a particular item. And you mentioned yeah. this idea of helping at the outset, knowing how to then reintroduce aspects of meaning in a, a client's life. What kind of other ways Yeah. Oh, sorry. What does that look
2: like? This is a bad pre-COVID example that just popped into my mind, which is that a lot of times we might have clients who save lots of, travel magazines and travel mementos and all kinds of things about, you know, a lot of our hoarders are very intellectually curious. It can be a really great um, and fun aspect of the, of the population. Mm. But we kind of start talking to them about how they're a massive amount of clutter is preventing them from actually traveling, actually seeing these things or actually getting out in the world. We might think about other ways, particularly ones that increase interpe- interpersonal connection where they can participate in a hobby or join with other people. One really nice example was someone who got a lot of emotional connection and support from going to um, boot sales and meeting up with her friends and and she would go and collect and buy a lot of things, but eventually began to go in and sell her items. So she still got that interpersonal connection and support, but in a way where she was living true to her goal, her hoarding treatment goals and trying to start to reduce her clutter great example that's so
1: sweet yeah it was very it's
0: a bit of creativity what's the thing that that person values and how do you realign their you know their path forward to to meet with those values and to get their satisfaction and enjoyment but not in the kind of perhaps maladaptive way and the other type
2: of exposures that we do that it can be quite fun because we have individual treatment and group treatment are non- non-shopping non and non-acquiring mm. exposures where we take a group of clients or, you know, sometimes an individual, but I enjoy doing it with a group. And it, there's a hierarchy involved, you know, increasing difficulty, but into situations where they would typically feel a lot of acquiring urges and encourage them to practice tolerating those urges. You know, at the more advanced end, they might pick up things that they would like to collect and actually hold them and and look at them and and replace them on the shelf and walk out of the store. So that idea that not needing to acquire every time you feel the urge.
1: I would love to be that therapist. That sense of group cohesion and it's an experience that everyone's in it together is so valuable for, for any type of therapy, but this sounds like specifically...
2: That's actually one of the biggest things we find in our hoarding groups, that connection they have with the other hoarding clients. A oh, lot of nice. times that's the first thing that they report is it's just so wonderful and validating to, and shame reducing to be with a group exactly. of people who understand.
1: When we are thinking about treatments for hoarding disorder, they integrate both a cognitive aspect and the exposure aspect. So they have both the C and the B in CBT, I suppose. Is there any evidence for which one is perhaps more effective for hoarding disorder, whether it's going down the more cognitive challenging path or going down more of the exposure path?
2: That is another sort of hot topic that you put your finger on. Well done. Yay. <laughs> um, there is early evidence um, that perhaps, at least for some populations, for older pop- populations, that just the behavioral and exposure component <laughs> ding ding oh, might rubby. be effective. <laughs> And so that's, it is variable. There's some clients we see anecdotally that really grasp onto the challenging and and do some downward arrow and really come to terms with some of their beliefs and are able to think more flexibly. But generally speaking, if I had to put my money on one, I would be putting my money on doing the discarding exposures and getting in there. We also do stuff like um, skills development. A lot of clients just really not familiar with how to manage their possessions, how to discard them, where things go, how to create a filing system. So there's that piece and the motivational interviewing, of course, as well, that add in that are a little bit separate from the C and the B. But, yeah, I, I think that a dismantling study would be really great mm. and no one's on that properly.
1: I love a dismantling study. Maddie also <laughs> loves behavioral approaches, so I was super, super <laughs> excited <laughs> to
0: hear you answer that. I think to keep all the hardline this cognitive therapists question. happy with us, it's I mean, I'm sure we would all agree that something like the exposures and the behavioral work around urge surfing while shopping does lead to cognitive change i can cope without buying this thing yep i can find meaning in my life whilst discarding these really personally valuable items
2: and some of the downward arrow where you get to what the things mean yes. and sometimes quite dark serious places so people doing a downward arrow and they end up at the end of the downward arrow so if i throw this out i'm i'm worthless and useless or no one loves me or my life doesn't mean anything." we had one client who very dramatically was throwing things in the bin and then said, well, I might as well throw myself. And she herself climbed into the bin. and was like, Um, so certainly I think getting aware of those, those really driving factors is useful. I mean, but I, I think that one challenge we have is some hoarding clients come in and would like to spend most of the time doing psychoeducation about hoarding and examining their own motivations and doing a lot of cognitive challenging. And my fear personally the therapist is sometimes that becomes avoidance and that they of course ding ding are, are really <laughs> i would never it's
0: it sounds to me you would have to in this kind of treatment approach address the behavior get rid of yeah. things right exposure. so when clients come
2: in and say i just want to understand why i do this i have a little warning light go in my mind that that's yeah. kind of they're not really ready or willing to put in the hard work Work. for change, but they are are wanting to spend some time understanding. And that doesn't necessarily lead to change unless you, um, as you said, incorporate those behavioral elements.
1: Yeah, exactly. Are we all happy with that? (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) I just can't help myself. I love exposure. There are also a lot of behavioral experiments where obviously you're incorporating. So they would test things out, particularly early on where they're, they're not ready for discarding. So the idea is, can you leave this box of trophies from when you were 10 in my office and see how many times you wish you looked through it when you feel like you need it, test out if you even remember. Sometimes we have clients who forget what they left in our office and that's interesting evidence wow. about how much they needed or what they, how much they would use it. And then at the end of the behavioral experiment, they can make the choice to discard or leave. So I think mm. definitely, especially earlier on before you're trying to do a more massive, We're cleaning out, getting a little bit more momentum going. You might be doing some behavioral experiments to test out um, some of the fears.
0: I also like that approach. I I guess with exposure, you could start by discarding things that have slightly less meaning, but it's a bit all or nothing, isn't it? It's going in the bin or it's not. So I like the idea of keeping it in a place for a little while and testing those things about how much did I miss it? Did I really remember what Mm it was? Is is a nice midpoint as well.
2: Yeah, for sure. And I think you're right, though, that later on, when you're getting into discarding exposures, you often simplify and the decisions are discard or save. Because what we want to avoid is a lot of what we call churning, where clients are picking things up and Maybe I could give this to my niece, but she lives in Canada and I need to figure out if I can fix the wheels on this car first. And then it goes back down on the ground and things just continue to get churned. The other thing that happens a lot with that is I try to get clients to really factor in their time as a cost because we have a lot of clients who have very elaborate and sometimes far-fetched ideas for how they are going to dispose of individual items. And oftentimes they have quite kind and generous motivations. But you think, okay, if you really think that of these thousand books, you're going to find the right person who wants each of these thousand books, and you're going to check the books if they're okay, and then you're going to put them in a package, and you're going to take them to the post office, and and they're not really thinking through the chain of things. So a lot of times I want people to do little experiments where they work out how long would it take you to do all those steps, and can you feasibly do that amount of time for each of these items, and maybe not unless you live till you're 300.
0: When you describe that, I just um yeah. I get this, um, I don't know, I get this really strong sense of this client group are often really pro-socially motivated. There's a certain flavor where I I feel myself really wanting to acknowledge their desire to to help and connect.
2: Yeah, I love that because there is a lot of negative stereotyping out there and and there has been a little tiny bit of study on them potentially hoarding the associated creativity but also, you're right that we do have clients with a very strong pro-social drive. Another like story that really gave me a pang in my heart was a client who had saved all these Easter eggs that she wanted to give to the neighborhood children, but she didn't give them to them in time. So now the Easter eggs were rotten, but just the idea that she had of not giving them out, she knew she couldn't because they were now obviously unsafe. She would just have fantasies of just like leaving them on the street and running because it was just so distressing to her that they she didn't get to give them out. So you're right, there is some t- oftentimes these really beautiful intentions, and I think that that is mm. nice to make sure to pay tribute to that and mm. also maybe build it into a bit of a strength based approach. Sometimes. Sure. Like the creativity and the appreciation of little details and and wanting to help the environment or wanting to give things to others is a good impulse, but whereas it kind of got them trapped at some point. Mm.
0: So we've spent a lot of time talking about treatment approaches, what might be real kind of drivers in the efficacy of treatments and the success that you see. But I guess in any parallel while delivering treatment and evaluating, we're also trying to understand more about the disorder and more about the risk factors to enhance treatment itself. In that space, Jess, what kinds of things are you finding out about the kinds of people who are more likely to have hoarding disorder, causal factors or risk factors?
2: Building on kind of something that's been raised a little bit here in terms of social emotions or interpersonal, there has been some research suggesting that some of the vulnerability factors are related to interpersonal attachment, the early family environment, particularly ones with cold or controlling parents. And also traumatic or or maybe not traumatic, sometimes just adverse life events, that that's something that creates a vulnerability to hoarding and possibly that an interpersonally anxious attachment style can be developed, which then might feed into this idea we are developing about sometimes hoarding being compensatory, that you have social difficulties or interpersonally anxious style and that objects and possessions end up being a safer, easier sense of comfort than than people which is interesting. This is some work also being done by Kyung Yap and Wendy Chen, who are students in my lab. And and also this angle of empathy, what we found in one early study, which is interesting of Wendy's, is that in terms of affective empathy, people with hoarding, hoarding was associated with increased um, emotional empathy. So like the emotional contagion, where when you're with someone who's upset, you become upset, that emotional aspect, and yet maybe decreased cognitive empathy, where it might be harder in some ways to understand other people's perspective or understand their emotions which is something we've seen in other disorders including autism spectrum type disorders so this is very new a new and interesting area of research i think is how are people with hoarding relating to other people and how that might drive some of the interpersonal difficulties that we see in this population
0: that's really interesting so if i've understood you correctly it seems that people with hoarding disorder if they were to observe somebody experiencing distress, they would feel that to a greater level than people without hoarding disorder, yet they wouldn't understand it cognitively as, as well?
2: Yes, I think we're still mapping it out to some extent, and yeah. we've been using behavioral tasks because what we find is that people are in general are not really great at, at reporting their level of emotional empathy or cognitive empathy so we've been using um behavioral tests, including including the one called the TACIT, which Sky McDonald developed at UNSW to look at how they're responding to interpersonal situations. And that's where we were starting to find that there might be some impairment in how they were able to recognize emotion in others or their theory of mind according to some of the norms of the TACIT, that, that people with clinically significant hoarding symptoms were impaired in those domains. But as you said, yes feeling just that ability to feel and share the emotions, kind of that contagion, which I think, again, this is early days, but is related to some of that poor distress tolerance, emotion dysregulation. Mm. If you're picking up the vibe of people and their distress around you, that can actually be quite challenging and can lead to you being a bit emotionally dysregulated. Mm. But at the same time, having a bit of trouble understanding people, which again, brings you back to stuff is easy to understand, stuff I can trust. And then there's also... The anthropomorphizing that happens in hoarding so actually projecting human qualities and human um, beliefs and motivations onto objects which is interesting
1: so if by extension if an individual has anthropomorphized an okay. object then perhaps it would make complete sense why it's not only just an indicator of a past memory or someone might want this but it has these elements that you wouldn't want to put a person in the bin
2: Absolutely, and that's a lot of the decisions we find where people say, "Oh, you know, I have all these teddy bears. If I throw away these three, the one that's left is going to be really lonely." Or another really um, extreme example uh, was a colleague of mine had, where the woman was watching one of those home shopping television networks, and there was these dolls that were they were selling, and she really didn't even like the dog dolls. She thought they were kind of unattractive, but no one was buying the dolls, and she started feeling really sorry for them. So she got on phone and started buying the dolls. To prevent them from feeling so lonely and rejected, but that, I mean that those are extreme examples, but you can see where that emotional contagion, empathy, is happening, but also kind of spilling it out that, to things that yeah, it shouldn't.
1: Those individuals are just trying to do a good thing as well. They're just trying to alleviate someone else's suffering, and exactly. it ends up spiraling. sometimes not a someone, it's a something else's suffering. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Interesting. I wonder, by extension, so we've kind of spoken about treatment and what that might look like and the various cognitive behavioral skill components of it if you were to suggest one thing that clinicians could integrate into their practice when it comes to working with people um with hoarding what would you say
2: um can i say two things of course course. (laughs) (laughs) okay i guess i guess two things that are following on from what we've said is one paying attention to the interpersonal component early on noticing when clients are very lonely and socially disconnected. And it's not necessarily easy in a lot of cases, but starting early on to come up with some creative ways that they can increase their social contact, increase their interpersonal connection. And the other thing I think, coming up with a creative ways to do home visits. So it's very hard for a lot of private practice clinicians to go into the client's home. I recognize that. If you can, it's wonderful. If you can't I think you, it's it's useful to try and do some kind of proxy that maybe you can do a Zoom meeting where they allow you to see aspects of their home and you can see how they're working or how much, what their stuff is looking like or, you know, failing that. You can have them take a video or take pictures. But I think really as much as you can getting a good visual and um, on what's going on and possibly working with them in the context. Because we have people bring stuff into the treatment, of course, but I think it's also really important if you can to get them to be helping them in their home environment where all this is going on.
0: And that's such an important outcome to measure as well, whether it's photographic or, or some sort of inventory oh, yeah. of actual possessions reducing. It reminds me of, of treatment for hair pulling, trichotillomania, that actually people bring in the hairs they've pulled between sessions yep. and there's no better indication of progress on that outcome than, yeah, than an right. objective measure
1: like that. And I was just thinking about doing discarding activities in the home, we know that one thing that makes exposure tasks more or less effective is that they're bound by context. So they're more likely to be retained if they keep being done in the context within which they were first taught. And so it makes sense for you to be wanting to do exposure in the home because it means that the clients are going to be more able to perhaps do exposure in the home than if they had to generalize it from the therapy context. It's already hard.
2: yes that's what I'm thinking Mm. yeah but a lot of times there's so much shame initially and I think finding ways around that is useful we do have clients who just from the very beginning of there's no way you're coming into my home but I think addressing that shame and finding ways to do a little baby steps for that as well maybe Mm. showing you one piece of your home but ultimately I agree with you that doing exposures in that context and Needing support in that context, whether it's other therapists or another kind of worker or family and friends that are less judgmental and there's not as much emotional, it's not as emotionally fraught, um, having that support, because it's a long process. That's the other thing is it takes a, a while. Oftentimes after active treatment, they have to continue working on their discarding and sorting and the ways that you can build in some support in their home environment are really critical
0: i'd love to see the outcomes of treatment where it's done in the home and treatment
1: where they Mm. bring it into therapy and throw it out in therapy and see if actually one or more is less successful and just one last tangent before i ask the next question i wonder it sounds like the therapeutic relationship is really really important in Mm. this treatment as well perhaps even more so than than others because there's an intimate relationship between the individual and their objects and then there's an intimate relationship between the individual and the therapist you're allowing someone into your home you're allowing someone to see your most precious items and then trust them to absolutely yeah throw them away it's a huge leap of faith and Mm -hmm. trust huge i know that there are a few studies now that have said that the therapeutic alliance actually has a huge impact on treatment outcomes do you see that that would also play out in the context of hoarding
2: Yes, that's the billionth study that you've mentioned that I think would be great to run and hasn't yet. (laughs) But certainly (laughs) therapeutic alliance, I think, is critical. And anecdotally, of course, we've heard that even when we have students working in the home, clinical students working in the home, those that the clients perceive as understanding and supportive and that they don't feel judged or shamed, it makes a huge difference Mm -hmm. in their willingness to work together. We also work with allied health professionals. So that's the kind of thing that we do in our trainings is talk about making sure that you are respectful of the client and you're focusing on them initially, not their stuff, and that you have clear rules.
0: So this might be related to that. What is one big misconception that you see in the field?
2: I think one harmful misconception, and maybe in the field, it's it's probably possibly more of a popular culture misconception is the uh, emphasis on a clean out or clear out and that People just need to get in there and throw all their stuff out and have a fresh start. I actually had someone approach me for a re- with a reality TV show idea where they were going to take the hoarding client and move them into a really beautiful, fresh apartment and then clear out all their stuff but keep it in storage and then give them a choice. Oh, and they'll, and they'll feel loads better. That. Like oh my God. No, those no, makeover shows. Going to no, work? No. But um, no. basically, it's obviously a really potentially damaging thing to do. And if you're not concerned, as you should be ethically, about the damage of people who become extremely distraught and a lot of grief, and there is stories of people in the U.S. who have actually suicided after something like that. Oh my gosh. If you're not convinced by that, then pragmatically it just doesn't work. relax. Obviously, they have. Exactly. So they haven't learned anything. They just start reaccumulating. And that's what we've seen. And of course, you know, as, you two, as, as skilled CBT therapists, would be aware of that. But what happens is there's such pressure from the community and the council, and everyone understandably gets so aggravated that this just becomes the last thing, the tool in their toolbox. And, it, mm. and it's not, not a good one.
0: Yeah, it's the powerful person in that relationship just implying their sense of what would be most helpful onto the recipient of that rather than yeah. the proper understanding of how do we sustainably respectfully help this person yes. work with
2: them mm. yeah and that's where you get to some very it's, l- luckily a very tiny percentage of the cases but a very difficult point what do you do when there's health or safety hazard sure and the person absolutely refuses treatment where what are, where do what are you, know? you at? yeah it's mm-hmm. a tricky one
0: what is one thing one research question Jess, you'd like to see answered uh or you'd like to answer yourself
2: I think the one research question I'd like to see answered is whether or not some of the work that we've been doing with Lifeline and um hoarding a great hoarding treatment program in Harbor to Hawkesbury is whether or not incorporating these strategies that we've been talking about, emotion regulation and some interpersonal effectiveness training as well, whether or not that will improve our treatment outcomes mm. for hoarding. They're really not excellent right now. It's certainly they're better than a control. So but only Say 40% of people at best are clinically significantly improved by the end of treatment. It's a clinically significant change. So it's really not good enough for our hoarding clients. We need to improve it. So, what I would like to do, and I've kind of been doing this in an uncontrolled way, but is run a proper randomized control trial where you compare standard CBT for hoarding with treatments incorporating more emotion regulation, distress tolerance. Is that going to improve both the client's experience of the treatment program, but also address some of these underlying vulnerability factors that are driving the hoarding whereas right now we're working mostly with the symptoms themselves but can we address some of those other factors that are contributing
1: more of a mechanistically informed approach rather than kind exactly. of let's slap cbt on this
2: you get it i need you two to be the reviewers. <laughs> <laughs> we will not
1: be a reviewer too <laughs> <laughs> i have learned
0: a great deal today i've really enjoyed hearing about what treatment for hoarding looks like and some of the ways it differs from typical
1: garden variety
0: <laughs> exposure therapy. I think it's also been really nice to hear about perhaps people not in that stereotyped end of the continuum and the general character of somebody who might be a typical hoarding client. And I hope that that helps people to access a bit more empathy and understanding mm. and, and dispel some of those unhelpful stereotypes about and harmful people who are hoarding and harmful mm. as well among many other things as well. Lots of questions to be answered and I really look forward yeah. to hearing
2: how your research career answers those things, Jess.
0: Yeah, and
2: thank you both for your wonderful insights and in questions. I feel like I've gotten a lot of interesting thoughts and perspectives oh, as well from this interview. So it's been really great. And thank you for having me. Thank you. Our pleasure.
0: Well, thanks for listening. We hope you learned a thing or two about hoarding. I loved it. I learned so much. Mm. And if you loved it too please feel free to subscribe on any platform where you get your podcasts. And also, if you wanted to find out more about Jess, if you wanted to find out more about us, Mm -hmm. provide us any recommendations, people you'd like to listen to, Mm -hmm. or if you'd like to claim CPD points from listening to today's episode with Jess, please head to our website, scienceoftherapy.com. And we will catch you next time.